Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey Greg, uh, I've got you on the the Zoom, but there we are. We have visual, and then there I we think, go, and we have sound, and we're off. Loving it. Nice. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing. Uh, I'm just uh, keen. Life is good. You're doing good. Well, you're about to go on tour like any minute, aren't you? Uh, the tour starts Thursday, so uh, a couple more days of rehearsal, and then we play our first show Thursday night. We're on the road with the Barstool Preachers. So really looking forward to this tour. It's going to be a blast. Yeah, great band they are. And uh, it's interesting because Jamie and myself have got dozens of of mutual friends, but weirdly we've never met. Um, And then Finn, I should have met because I DJ'd an after party for the Mahones in Belfast not too long ago, like a couple of months ago, but we didn't get to meet either. So it's kind of strange that you're the first person out of the band that I get to sit down and have a chat with, but I'm thrilled that you're on the show. And um, yeah, loads and loads I want to talk to you about, obviously the new band, um, but just your whole life, really, if you're up for going and you know delving into the nooks and crannies of, of the past and the present and looking ahead to the future, because I think it's an interesting story that you, know, you obviously were in, Huskadoo, a hugely important and awesome band. And then when that kind of came to an end, am I right in thinking that you sort of stepped away from the music industry for quite a significant amount of time? Uh, I did. I I got into the restaurant business and uh, I've got a very close friend who's one of the top uh, chefs uh, in Minnesota and in the upper Midwest here in the States. And he got me into the back of the house and taught me how to start cooking. And, and, uh, oddly enough, I actually did spend a summer in London and I worked for, uh, Gary Rhodes at the greenhouse as, uh, as an intern. Wow. And, uh, when I got back from that, I ended up opening up uh, a restaurant for some people that I know. And I ran that place for seven years and then started my, my own restaurant. And I had that for, about another seven years or so and um, stepped away from it in 2010. But from the early, I went about 14 years without playing the bass. 
I was just full time into uh, uh, being a chef and cooking and and uh, learning about wine and and running restaurants and things like that. Now, were you somebody who, from as far back as you can remember, always had an interest in hospitality and food? Um, or were you just looking to do something so different to music after the band fell apart and you kind of just fell, you know, organically, as it were, into that lane? Uh, I had worked in restaurants um, in the early days of Who's Do. So when, when the band broke up, I just kind of gravitated back to that, uh, which is where I met... Uh, my my mate uh, Letty Russo, and uh, I always had a, an interest and a passion for cooking. Uh, kind of uh, you know, traveling Europe with the band helped expand my palate, and uh, also uh, you know my my interest in wine was developed early on in uh, early days of the band and and traveling through Europe. So. It was a natural place for me to to fall back to. I love it. I, I find that fascinating, and I've always worked in hospitality alongside, um, you know, my jobs in, in the music industry, and I've always been somebody who's really passionate about that environment. And there's a similar kind of sense of community I feel with restaurateurs and bartenders, and you know, kitchen staff and cooks. And for me, there's a similar camaraderie that exists. Um, as with live events and, and the road crew and the band, it kind of bands you together. It's almost this sort of us versus them mentality in a way, because sometimes obviously customers can be quite hard to deal with. You've got long shifts, long hours. And I think it does create this, you know, resilience, which is similar to what you get when you're, you know, a young group of friends heading out in the van. I think so. I, I totally agree. Uh, I think there are a lot of parallels between the two industries, you know, the, uh, uh, Late nights, long hours, uh, you know, getting together after your shift. Uh, like you say, that com camaraderie. Uh, yeah, and, it, and it's a business where the customer isn't wrong, but they're not necessarily right either. And you have to be a bit diplomatic like that. You, you know, you can't all, everybody can't be Marco Pierre White and just start kicking people out of your restaurant. So, uh, <laughs> um, a lot of respect for for Marco, by the way. Uh, so, and, and I, I understand he's mellowed a little bit since he, you know, in the last over the last couple of decades. But uh, yeah, no, I guess we all mellow with age, right? Even the uh, most spiky of characters, right? Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was really a natural spot for me to to go back to, and um, I don't I don't miss working in restaurants, uh, except for those friendships that you develop with your with your crew uh your co-workers your you know and and a lot of the customers well it's safe to say i mean would you feel like you succeeded in in your um you know expedition into that field because you're obviously at it for a while and, and i think a lot of people um you know in the entertainment industry feel like they can just go into the restaurant business and it's going to be a piece of cake and so many fail um <laughs> Obviously, That's you had true. a good run. So, do you feel like you achieved what you you hoped to do and got out of it what you hoped to get out of it? Uh, I would say that that it exceeded my expectations. Uh, you know, I knew going into it that it was a lot of work and, and hard hours, and uh, but it was it's also a very creative field. So, uh, I was never a chef that thought that what I created was art because I know what happens to that art several hours after people enjoy it. Right. So, but it was still a lot of fun. Uh, we, we were one of the, the, you know, early proponents of farm to table and, and, uh, scratch cooking, um, writing our menus on a daily basis based on, on what we had available and things like that. So uh, the restaurant got a lot of, of accolades and a lot of praise and we got some good write-ups. I learned a, a, a lot about wine. That's uh, still a passion. Um, actually, after the restaurant business, I went to work for a, a importer here in, in Minnesota uh, that specialized in, in, um, sourcing 
uh, from small producers around Europe. So, uh, you know, just keep learning and keep moving on. Keep redefining yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think anybody who's creative feels that need. And sometimes that means switching up, you know, the field which you work in altogether. You mentioned you didn't pick up a base for what did you say? 14, 14 years, 14 years. Yep. That's a long time when that's something that's so inherently in you to not, you know, <laughs> not dabble at all. Um, was it just because you were so well and truly over it by the end of Huskadoo because of just the nature of the way things had ended with that band? Uh, a little bit of that. You know, I mean, I, I had a project after Huskadoo bro broke up called Gray Area. Uh, and and that you know we we had a little bit of success, but it was uh, uh, it was just difficult to put people's schedules. You know, um, you know, people had families and mortgages and and things like that. You couldn't just jump in the van and just take off without a care to care in the world. You know, you had responsibilities. Uh, and then getting into the working in restaurants. You know, it's sixty. 70 hour weeks and uh it's just no time or or energy <laughs> yeah. you know to, to pick it back up but but uh i uh, i met a, a good friend dave king who is uh the drummer for the bad plus the jazz trio uh actually dave was just on the road in in uh in england just a couple of weeks ago uh, and he had this idea for this band. He's like, you're the perfect bass player for it. So I kind of felt like I should get a bass. I mean, I still had my electrics, but I didn't really have anything good to practice on. So I bought a cheapy Fender acoustic bass, which I still have and, and use to practice on, but I didn't have an amplifier either. So I had to buy an amp and, uh, it's like, okay, well, I guess I'm getting back into this. Mm-hmm. And, it, did, it, and did it come naturally? Did it feel like you barely been away, you know, two minutes? Or was there a little bit of relearning? And like, how does it pan out like that? Because they say, you know, some things are like riding a bike, you never forget. It's just, it's in you. What did you find after that long away? Uh, well, what I discovered was the, the playing, you know, the mechanical part, that came back relatively quickly. Remembering how to play particular songs that I should have, you know, just been able to rattle off it was like oh, how did i play that again you know so uh you know that was a bit of kind of shaking loose all the cobwebs and and getting those uh brain synapses connected in the right way again did you ever play with either bob or grant after huskadoo broke up uh i uh grant and i played on um uh, uh, several bills together, uh, you know, either something that I was in or Grant was on as a solo act. Uh, we actually did get on stage and play with the, we both played with the Meat Puppets at a show back in like 2010. Nice. And I think that might have been the only time that Grant and I actually played together. And, um, you know, Bob did his one thing with Grant uh, at, at a benefit for Carl Mueller from Soul Asylum when Carl was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and I think that's the only time that they played together. Bob and I have never played together since Cusker. So uh, I was in a band. We opened up for Bob uh, and Bob just didn't feel that it would. He said it wouldn't feel right getting up and just playing Cusker or or something with me without grant there of course he still played you know four or five husker songs in his set but i guess that's different yeah well i mean you for me have one of the most unique stories in the history of alternative well all all kind of modern music really because you are right in the middle of these two um seemingly very different character and creative forces right and so was your job very much to kind of try and hold the thing and keep the thing together and, and play mediator between those two. And what was that uh, like if that was the case? Yeah, that, that was, 
kind of kind of the spot I was in. Uh, you know, in the early days of Hoosker, it was definitely you know three guys collaborating on things. And but as things progressed, and um, you know that the there was the battle of the songwriters, right? The two two great songwriters, and it got to a point where it was hard for me to bring material to uh, uh, into practice. Uh, to to it's like, hey, I've got an idea, and you know, I have to admit, it, it always felt like they never were putting forth the same effort as they were on on their own material, or or even, you know, I think Bob tried really hard on Grant stuff, and Grant tried really hard hard on Bob stuff, and with me, they weren't trying as hard, so I just kind of backed out of it and let them duke it out. Um. You know, in, in a way, it's it's you know reading reading subsequent stories about George Harrison and his frustration and trying to get, have you know Lennon and McCartney recognize what he was bringing to the table. It's like can totally relate. Yeah, I guess he had Ringo though as somebody else within the band that you know at least if he wasn't an ally to him, he could be a buffer of sorts to help defuse the tension. But when there's right. that kind of three, a trio, it can be an awkward number, can't it? Like they do say three is a crowd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I guess that, uh, you know, kind of kind of put me in. Uh, I think Grant kind of leaned on me a little bit more when he was trying to get Bob to do something, whereas, you know, Bob generally makes up his mind and that's what he's going to do. So. Were you closer with with Grant as opposed to Bob then, or was it kind of just yeah? Well, free for uh, all. Grant and I have been uh, good friends before the the band started, and you know we we met Bob when we both worked in a record store when Bob showed up in St. Paul to go to McAllister College, and uh, that's how we met Bob. I I kind of felt that you know over the the nine year run that Husker was together that Bob and I became friends. Um, but, you know, after Who's Purdue broke up, Bob moved out of the state and, uh, I probably, I went a long time between seeing, seeing Bob, um, from a show in the early nineties, actually at, uh, Brixton Academy in mm -hmm. London, uh, when he was with Sugar to, um, seeing him when his book first came out he played a solo acoustic show at a club in, in Minneapolis. And, uh, that was a little awkward seeing him for the first time, but you know, Bob, Bob and I are, are, are better now. Uh, you know, Grant stayed in Minnesota, so I would see Grant a lot more. And, uh, you know, and actually right before, uh, the summer before Grant passed away, actually I kind of felt that our friendship had finally fully been restored. That's beautiful, and and I hope that there was definite, you know, healing and and closure and and positive things that you know that stirred up in you, despite the fact that you obviously, you know, you lost your friend and and it was so sad to lose him. But yeah, I, I'm glad to hear that you, you know, you you mended those bridges whilst there was still time to do so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and um, Bob lives out in Southern California now, and I'm still here in Minnesota, so. Um... Uh, I mean, you know, like I said, things are, are, are much better between, between us these days. Um, you know, we, we just, uh, worked on a, uh, a new Husker Du project that came out for record store day. Uh, we revived the old reflex record label, which we put our first single out on and put out a double live record from our earliest recordings at. Uh, club in Minneapolis called uh, the Longhorn, and uh, that turned out really great. And and Bob's super happy with it. And hopefully we'll we'll continue to collaborate on uh, things Husker for for a long time now. Amazing. And is it just you two? There's no like external business involvement because that can sometimes be the souring of relationships, can't it? With with these projects, you know, down the right. line. It's yeah. So it's it's Bob and I. Uh, we do have um, a gentleman by the name of Dennis Pulowski, who's an attorney that that 
helped take care of all of the Husker business. And Grant's uh, widow, Bridget, is is involved as well. Uh, she, you know, she leaves all of the um, creative decisions to to myself and Bob. She doesn't want to get involved with that, but but she's there and supportive, and you know, so in a way, we're still together. What about Minneapolis in the eighties? Because you know, it seemed to me that that region, you know, you had you guys. You obviously have the replacements. You have Prince. Um, obviously very different act soul asylum who you mentioned a moment ago it did seem to be a bit of a creative hotbed um what was it about that place at that time do you think that lent itself to you know upcoming artists and, and musicians finding their their voice and, and honing their craft and and getting things going uh, you know we talked about that a lot back in the day it's uh so many great musicians and great bands and artists from the, the Minneapolis area and we used to joke it because it was it gets so cold here in the winter time that nobody uh, uh, wants to do anything outside so everybody congregates in their basement and they put put a band together and you don't have anywhere to go so you practice all the time and uh, but you know we also had you know had a, a and still have a, a great music scene as far as venues uh, the Longhorn Bar that I just mentioned, 7th Street Entry and 1st that's, Avenue. That's still going, is it? Are, it's still open. It's still, still going. Still Amazing. Going strong. And, and there are a lot more smaller little venues that have popped up. And still so many talented musicians in Minneapolis and St. Paul. It's, it's amazing. And like you said, you mentioned Prince. You know, Prince, uh, Minneapolis, uh, Prince kind of ruled the north side with what he was doing. The, uh, the punk scene kind of uh, rolled the south side, but First Avenue was being right in the middle. Downtown Minneapolis was where both of these uh, scenes came together. And there was a lot of support uh, between punks going to see, uh, you know, Prince and the time and things like that. And and other folks who were, were Prince fans, uh, you know, liking and supporting what was going on with us and the replacements in the suburbs and and uh you know soul asylum that's awesome yeah so you know it, it it's it was a magical place to be you know it's um you know athens georgia had had their run and then minneapolis had its run and then seattle was like you know the next the next thing but we always felt that seattle borrowed a lot from what we were doing in minneapolis yeah, well, just to kind of jump ahead real quick there, it seems like, you know, you guys laid so much of the foundations and the framework for what would become alternative rock, but you obviously broke up before that movement really got its time in the sun. Um, was there frustrations on, on any of your parts or all of your parts in regards to that? Because you've obviously inspired so many, you know, now massive bands. I just saw the other night you were at a Blink-182 show and Mark Coppice gave you a little shout out and, you know, obviously bands like Green Day, Foo Fighters, Nirvana um, owed so much of their success and their sound to Husker Du, but do you feel like you guys maybe missed the boat in a sense, or are you happy with the legacy of the band and what you achieved and did? Well, I'm definitely happy with, with the band's legacy and, and what we achieved. It would, uh, it would have been interesting to see where Husker was going next you know uh, we were about to record our third album for warner brothers when the band broke up uh you know rem were were kind of on the ladder rung right above us you know we were we were following them and and right you know maybe a year or so after the band broke up they start playing arenas mm -hmm. uh, i don't know if husker would have ever you know made the jump to arenas but uh you know, Bob, Bob had some, you know, a bit of commercial success with, with sugar, uh, in the nineties. So, uh, it, it's funny because I think Husker du is probably more popular and, and known today in 2023 than we were in, you know, 1988 when we broke up and, you know, we owe all of that to the to the internet. You know, and and the fact that that we did inspire so many bands that went on to, uh, you know, huge commercial success. 
and they still talk about us, you know, um, which is nice. I, it's it's a good legacy. Yeah, I think it's incredible. You know, I think that the um, the the mark that you leave on cultural history for me is more important than you know financial gain. Obviously, it's nice to be able to afford to pay your bills and you know maybe treat yourself to the occasional luxury item or at least go on holidays or whatever. But I think when you have such a firm place in music history like you guys do, that nobody can touch that, nobody can take that away from you ever. Uh, I think it's an incredibly special thing. I hope it does feel, you know, good to know that that's where you sit as as an act in, in that timeline. Because, you know, I think for me, there was obviously the hardcore scene, which gave birth to everything that would later come in terms of DIY underground music. But you guys, for me, are almost like the exact stepping stone from Black Flag to Nirvana. And like without you, I think there would have been no MTV generation kind of, you know, grunge scene. Um because hardcore had kind of played out by the mid 80s hadn't it as exciting as it was to begin with um i think a lot of those bands just kind of you know became repetitive and redundant after a certain time right because of their unwillingness to expand the sound i i totally agree with that uh i did an interview with with uh for the magazine psychology today and we were talking about punk and and it's one of those things where you know certain people will will latch on to a moment of your career and that will define it for them and then they never want you to move on from that and when you do move on from it you know uh people might say oh you sold out or you changed your sound but really you're evolving as an artist and in a way, that's the most punk thing that you can do is to keep growing as an artist and evolving and changing uh, instead of just hanging your, you know, your hat on one thing. Although plenty of people have made careers out of that. Uh, but I, I think it's good to push your limits and, and um, uh, try new things. You know, Grant, you look at Grant Hart's records post Husker and Grant was always changing things and do it, trying different things. And, and even when he would play solo acoustic shows, he would play Husker songs, but he would change them up. He wouldn't play them straight, you know? Um, and I always had a lot of respect for that. Yeah. I noticed you've got a dead Kennedy's hat on now as we talk as well. And uh, I heard <laughs> I heard an interview you did where you said about Jella's reaction to um to Zen Arcade. <laughs> <laughs> Wonder if you wouldn't mind just sharing that little tidbit here because I think that just absolutely you know persona encapsulates his persona and his sense of humor uh, so wonderfully. Um, yeah, it made me laugh when I heard that. <laughs> yeah, no, that 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 was a great memory. We so we were recording uh, Zen Arcade, and in the middle of the uh, we, you know, went in, laid down all of the uh, the basic tracks and scratch vocals, and you know, we had rough mixes, and we had some shows booked before we came back down to LA to to do the final mix. So one of the shows was in San Francisco, and we were staying at um, Jello's place, and we played it for him, and listens through to the whole thing, and at the end of Reoccurring Dreams. Just says, ah, yes, Husker Du, the band that brought self indulgence back to rock and roll. <laughs> and it was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so good. Yeah, I, I love the support that I gather they and, and Black Flag uh, and, and DOA and bands like that showed you guys early on. Like, who musically were, were your sort of mentors, influences? and perhaps peers as well but certainly when you're starting out who are the groups that you all look to as writers and as players that helped show you the way well a lot of um, a lot of english bands uh buzzcocks were a big influence on us uh gang of four uh they're two of my all-time favorites right there especially buzzcocks that is as good as yep. music gets for me oh for sure yep uh in the states uh you know 
or North America. So DOA and the subhumans from uh, Vancouver, uh, you've got the dead Kennedys, there's Black Flag, but then also Mission of Burma out of Boston were, were a big influence on us. Uh, oh, Wire, Wire was a big influence. Uh, Paraubu out of, out of Chicago. Um, so you guys were much more inspired by the post-punk kind of stuff as opposed to the, the hardcore, right? Is that just because, again, it always had a bit more of an ambition and a scope to the sound? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, the Clash were a big influence. Um, you know, I guess, you know, as far as like, you know, looking at 76, 77, you know, punk bands that, you know, the first explosion, you know, I guess we were always kind of lean more towards the bands that were more musical as opposed to just, um, uh, um, not musical, I guess. <laughs> uh, just ferocious, just loud, fast, and hard. Right, and and stateside, you know, we we definitely li also like bands that that you know were doing something interesting. You know, you, you look at the SST roster from those days. You know, Meat Puppets, Minutemen, Husker Du, Sacrament Trust. Uh, you know, and of course Black Flag, and then you've got all of these other hardcore bands that just all kind of sounded the same, looked the same, had the same dogma. Uh, and at the same time would preach like be different and be like us, or we're, we're going to kick your ass. And, you know, we, we didn't, we didn't vibe with that. You know, it's like, yeah, we like to be different part, but we don't want to be just like you, you know, we don't want to sound just like you. Uh, you know, we consciously didn't put a photograph of the band on any of our records ex up to actually uh, Warehouse was the only record studio album that was released that had a photo of the band on it. Because and that's we didn't the last one, right? Wow. That was the last one. Yeah. Because, you know, we didn't want people to look at it and just make a judgment. Oh, well, they must sound like this because this is what they look like. Uh, it's the first time we played in Hamburg, Germany, we were setting up our own gear on that tour and we set up, we started playing. We we're probably three or four songs into the set before the audience realized we were actually the band that they were there to see and uh, talked to some uh, punchers after the show. And they were like, oh, yeah, we didn't know that you guys were the band. We, we you know, didn't know what Husker Du looked like, but just based on your sound, we thought maybe, you know, You'd all be like six four with big mohawks and leather jackets and and all that, and it's like nope, it's just got three regular guys from Minnesota. Yeah, I've spoken Plus. about this on on the show with a few different people, and for me, there's nothing punk rock about a uniform and uh, an ex an expectation of a visual presentation. Um, you know, if everybody looks and sounds the same, then that isn't for me what my idea of punk is, which is as you said, it's just to be original and true to yourself that's it that's all it is exactly um, and you don't need a leather jacket or bondage trousers to, <laughs> to right. prove yeah. to prove your punk rock worth hey you mentioned a couple yep. of your peers there i'd love to get into to these so for me there's really four bands that form the bridge between hardcore punk and then you know the alternative rock of the 90s and that's you guys replacements me puppets and the minutemen um four of my absolute all-time favorite bands all so unique so distinct and different from one another and original to themselves um you must have tons of, of fond memories and you know stories from coming up with those guys any spring to mind of tours or just shared experiences that you have with those guys as, as young you know kids essentially just starting out in the game yeah so the replacements and uh and Husker we basically start at the same time in 19, uh, you know, 78, 79 in the uh, Minneapolis music scene. And there was, there was a good um, fun rivalry between the two bands. You know, we, uh, we like them, they liked us. Uh, we would joke that we always wanted the other band to be the second best band in town. <laughs> and, uh, no one wants to be the second best right <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh you know actually 
uh, our first gig in New York City was at a club called Great Gildersleeves in the Bowery. And we had the replacements open for us. Um, we got them on the bill. They happened to be out there. And the club didn't pay them anything. They got, they got paid nothing. So we, I think we, you know, we gave them some money after the show, but there was an opening band called uh, the young and the useless. And I believe a, like one or two of the um, people in that band went on to be in beastie boys, but they got paid a hundred bucks for opening the replacements play the metal slot. They get nothing, uh, which I thought was a shame. But, Did you um, get treated differently to local New York and L.A. bands when you went to places like New York and L.A.? Because you were sort of, you know, for lack of a better phrase, like the hicks from out of town. Like, Did they show loyalty to bands that were on that scene and were local? And was it harder uh, for you guys to make a know, change actually, in the cities we, like that or not? We, we, we did well in, in, um, out on the road. And I think that's all through the power of, of college radio back in the day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, New York was, was kind of an odd place because there wasn't really a cohesive scene in, in New York. Uh, you know, Chicago kind of the same way wasn't really a cohesive scene. Uh, you know, LA, there were so many different things going on. You know, SST was located in, in an area that they refer to as South Bay. And we had our, you know, uh, group of bands that played together and then there were bands like agent orange and tsol and suicidal tendencies and back in the day we kind of looked at them as like posers you know like they dressed punk but they didn't really play punk um in our opinion and of course they went on to have great commercial success so i guess the joke's on me but uh you know it, it it's just kind of funny when i think back to that it's like really those guys made it huge it's like man we thought they were just a bunch of wankers so um <laughs> but you know the clubs that we were playing you know gildersleeves wasn't really the best club for us to play at uh cbs cbgbs would have been the spot for us but they they were booked when we came through on that tour but uh, you know, we we quickly started playing larger halls in New York, and uh, there would always be a good crowd there. What about um, the Minutemen as well, and D Boone? What a, what a beautiful character by all accounts he was, and what a great band they were. Yeah, now they're uh, all all three of those guys are beautiful people. I just actually did in uh, Mike Watts' podcast, Watt from Pedro, last week, and it was great catching up with him and, and talking about everything. D Boone was a, was just a sweetheart. Um, absolutely loved that guy. He, he, you know, I considered him a brother and, and I, I still miss him to this day. Uh, the meat puppets are still friends to this day. Um, haven't really seen George Hurley since uh, the last fire hose show that I saw. So it's been a while, but, I'm hoping to um, that he comes out to our show in in Long Beach. Um, yeah, we uh, actually SST put together a thing where it was uh, Husker Du and the Minutemen, and this might have been the first time the Minutemen played the East Coast. But uh, we we played New York, Providence, Boston, and uh, Philadelphia. So uh, oh, and DC. So five shows. And uh, we flew out and got picked up by uh, the guy who would, would become our, our road sound en engineer, Lou Giordano. And then uh, the Minutemen showed up, and that was, that was a fantastic tour. The, uh, the uh, Love Hall was the show in Philadelphia that we played on, on that, uh, that run. And there's some great photos of both Husker and the Minutemen from, from that show. But, you know, one of, one of the things I remember best and fondly is watching the Minutemen play in a room where there's not a whole lot of people. So I would be like right up front and I'd be in front of D Boone and he'd be hopping around and he'd see me and he'd like jump off stage and stage dive on top of me. It's <laughs> like, oh! And he's a big boy, <laughs> isn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a big sweetheart. 
I love it. And, and replacements, a lot of what's said about them is that they could have either been the best or the worst band on the night, depending on how drunk they were. Was that very much the case? It absolutely was the case. Uh, yeah, I mean, they had some personnel changes as, as they went on. You know, Bob Stinson leaves the band and gets replaced by Slim Dun Dunlop. Uh, you know, Chris Mars gets replaced. You know, they, they as they got bigger, they, they started to figure out that they couldn't be the court jesters that uh, that they made themselves out to. But they definitely had the reputation of either the best show you're going to see or the absolute worst show that you're going to see. And we, we heard some stories about some pretty bad gigs that they they had, but I saw a lot of good ones. So What about you guys? That were you were you always good on the road despite the tensions going on um behind the scenes did you feel like you could always bring it live on the night despite oh absolutely yep yeah. uh that was i mean that was the best that that is the best thing about being on the road is getting up on stage and playing and uh yeah we we always tried to play as many shows as we could when we were out um uh, you know, the Minutemen also uh, subscribe to that that same passion. Mike Watts still does. He, Mike Watts still goes out and plays in, an insane number of gigs. Uh, but yeah, I mean, once we got up and the music started, it was it was all about that. And uh, you know, for opening up for somebody, the goal was to blow them off the stage and. And if uh, we were the headliner and somebody tried to blow off us off the stage, well, we'd make sure that that didn't happen. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When so, when you're all out on the road to begin with, is it like are you are you all friends for a good while? Like before the cracks start <laughs> to form? Is there did you have a good run where the mood in the camp was good? Oh yeah, we had we had a very long run where that was good. Um you know, I wouldn't. I would say that the tensions didn't really start to build until after we uh, signed to Warner's, and uh, you know, at that point, it's everybody had like their own hotel room type of thing. Um, so there wasn't as much 
camaraderie anymore. But, um, you know, and I guess that's also just kind of the nature of the band being together for almost a decade as well. So, well, you guys packed in a lot, didn't you? You know, I mean, when you look at how many albums you put out, incredible albums you put out, and and the you know the scope of those albums in such a short space of time, like Zen Arcade, New Day Rising, um, and Flip Your Wig, that was like eighteen months, right? In which you put out those three with touring as well. I mean, that is unheard of by today's standards, and probably by that by that yeah. day's standards as well. <laughs> oh, for sure, yeah, because Zen Arcade came out in uh, what July first of eighty four, and then we follow new day rising is out early 85 and flip your wig is out in the fall. So, uh, probably a little less than 18 months. It was, that was a lot of fun. What's your favorite Husker D record? Do you have one? I don't necessarily have a favorite. I always, I always think that that's sort of like being asked, like, which kid is your favorite kid? Uh, I'm you sure know, they, parents they, have them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure they do. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, and the way I kind of look at it is that a studio album is, is like a photograph in time. Yeah. It's a representation of where the band is at, at a particular moment when they, they wrap up a project in the studio. Um, I love them all, you know, and actually, uh, I think they hold up extremely well. I just listened through Zen Arcade, all four sides just recently and, and was just kind of just like, wow, that is, still sounds so good. Um, good records. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they're all good. Everybody has such emotional attachments to music. I think it's you know, I love cinema and I love painting and literature and uh, and all the arts, but there's just something about music that is so unique to that art form, I think, where people form such strong emotional attachments and it takes them right back to that place in time when they really first, you know, discovered the album and, and really lost themselves in it. And, and when you're a part of making it, the memories that must come flooding back and the, the feelings and the emotions must be overwhelming and, and so intense and, and hopefully beautiful and, and brilliant to experience. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, I would say 90% of, 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 of re reflecting on those moments are all good. You know, there are some that are like, eh, yeah, that, and then that happened too. But for the most part, you know, it's, um, it was great recording those records. They were great experiences. You know, working with spot was, was great. Spot gets a lot of slack, um, or he did get a lot of slack, uh, a lot of times from, from people in like Reddit columns and things, things like that, where they, they're not happy with his production, but you know, Bob, uh, our spot wasn't the only one producing those records you know bob bob and grant were were there producing them as well so um i think spot really made a lot of history and and recorded so many great great bands uh you know he kind of had a unique style in a way maybe it was the sst house sound type of thing but mm -hmm. but each every band was so different that it, every record every group you know had their 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 uniqueness with the this will be my kind of final question on husker do i think but with the the pulling together of, of of the sound of grant's drums and and bob's guitar and their voices and you're right there in the middle not just of the personalities but of of the music like as a bassist as a musician what did you feel like your approach and attack was um when it came time to you know tying the whole thing together in such a brilliant way because your bass lines are such a cornerstone of, of all husker do's music um, and it, it really does hold the whole thing together so beautifully. Um, what was your, you know, method uh, of holding that cacophony of brilliant noise together? Right. <laughs> uh, you know, it's the, uh, the, the, the bass player is the timekeeper. Uh, so, so there's that. But, you know, I was never classically trained uh, on, you know, it's like I never lose, learned music theory or anything like that. So. I kind of liked playing in, in kind of a middle register and 
following Bob around on the guitar and and uh, by doing that, I think it really helped give Husker, you know, a lot of a lot of the early stuff. People were like, "Oh yeah, I heard that. I thought you guys had two guitar players," you know, because the bass is kind of filling filling in. Uh, it's almost like I'm playing rhythm bass to Bob's um, lead, right? Uh, and I just played what I heard in my head that I thought worked good and it's and the way my fingers worked and and uh you know that kind of became I guess my sound yeah and never really thought about it but it's like oh well that's that's the way I play bass yeah well you're a great bassist man and it's you know it's a, a cornerstone of the overall Husker Do sound obviously I know that you know Bob and Grant get a lot of the attention as as the two kind of main songwriters but uh, it takes three to tango in this case. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're right there in all of the songs. Um, and yeah, what a, what a great musical legacy um, and what a, an, a, you know, an amazing contribution to the world of music. Um, Thank you very much. Appreciate how that. you're very welcome, man. How, how do you then wind up with a Brit and a Canadian uh, <laughs> after all, after all these years, how do you and Jamie and, uh, and Finn first all meet? And then how do we get to ultra ultra bombs and, and get this band going? Cause it was meant to be right before COVID you were going out. Right. But we'll, we'll get to that in a bit, but first of all, you three, how do you all get together? Well, it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's funny in a way. So I had been playing bass locally in Minneapolis with a trio called porcupine. And, uh, you know, we had, we had, I had a good run with them. Uh, the band had been around for a long time. I, took over for their original bass player uh but it kind of got to a point where things weren't quite working out uh the the group's leader decided he wanted to maybe try something different so uh i was no longer in the band and uh finney had been a facebook friend uh sent me a friend request because he was a big husker fan and actually up until he had I'd gotten a friend request from him. I had never heard of the Ramones, but that are not, uh, excuse me, the Mahones. <laughs> you definitely but, heard of the Ramones. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, but so, you know, started to, you know, check out his stuff on YouTube and going like, Oh wow, these guys are pretty good. I, I, you know, Finney's, Finney's really good. And so we had been kind of core, you know, Facebook corresponding for, for a few years. And when he saw that I was no longer with Porcupine, he sends a message and and said, "Hey, I know the, the greatest punk rock drummer on the planet. He's a good good mate of mine. He's uh, plays with the UK Subs, Jamie Jamie Oliver. He'd love to be in a band with you." Now, do you and, do you in that moment think he's talking about the chef? I've left that well behind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and I said, uh, "I'm like really Jamie Oliver." And he's like, "No, no, not the chef." <laughs> and according to Jamie, uh, that the chef also is a drummer, but. Um, not probably a, a chitty one you know yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so at the same time finney had sent uh jamie a message going like hey you want to start a band with greg norton and jamie was like oh hell yes let's do this so you know so we we get together through the internet and uh you know we have a few video chats together and we're like okay yeah well we could have some fun let's just the original idea was we'll play some Husker covers, uh, you know, some Grant songs that that aren't being played uh, live right now, uh, some Mahones, some UK subs, you know, just get together and have a laugh. And about a month after that, both Jamie and Finney are in Berlin. Finney's got studio time booked, and I'm like, I should probably go to Berlin and meet these guys and see if there's actually something here. And, and so I fly to Berlin. So you've got a Brit, a Canadian and an American um, getting together in, in Berlin, Germany. Re just really different studio. musical styles as well. Uh, you know, what the UK subs do. And I know Jamie's been in a bunch of bands and, and, and the Mahones and then, and then your background. So eclectic. So when you put those three elements together, got to be exciting. Uh, it was exciting, and we literally wrote the record 
in the studio in two days. We wrote 10 songs in two days. And we're like, holy crap, this feels like we've been playing together for years. And it was just so natural uh, for all three of us, you know, in, in that room, in that moment to, to lay down these tracks and write these songs. Uh, and then uh, uh, I told Vinny, it's like, well, I've got a lot of lyrics. And he looked at my lyrics and was like, I've got the whole record figured out. And did you have a bunch of stuff left over from you that, know, all of those years in Husker Do that you didn't get a chance to develop more? Did you have a bunch of musical and lyric ideas dating uh, all the way back not, to then? Not from, not from way. Uh, these were all lyrics that I had written, uh, you know, in probably within one to three years of leading up to us getting together in, in uh, Berlin. And Finney put it all together with the tunes that we had just recorded and sang it and i was blown away by how well he took lyrics that i wrote independent of the music and they fit so perfectly you know so from there we get done we're all excited uh finney goes back to toronto does you know guitar and vocal overdubs uh we're gonna do some some shows in canada and that gets uh, sidetracked because of uh, uh, Canadians deciding at the last minute that uh, Jamie needed a, a visa to get in, into the country. So over the next couple of months, Jamie gets the uh, all of the mixes from Finney, and um, he goes into a studio and mixes it. And we get the record done in uh, uh, February of 2022. And we're about to, to leave again to play some shows. And um, my sister gets diagnosed with a uh, rare form of leukemia and, uh, you know, is spends uh, over a month in the hospital. And, and uh, she she's fully recovered now, by the way. But that that's another another uh, misstep. And then. Uh, and then we're about to embark, you know, so things get pushed back another month and I'm about to leave on that. And then there were new COVID restrictions and it's like, oh, are you fucking kidding me? So now we've got the tour booked for um, June in England and uh, I get diagnosed with prostate cancer. <laughs> so it's like, are we cursed or what is going on here? So another cancellation, uh, I start feeling like, oh man, we're losing all of our momentum here. Uh, you know, we're, we're gonna be known as, as like, uh, instead of a garage band, we're gonna be a mirage band on, on the never scene. And uh, right before I go in to have my prostate removed, actually, Finney and Jamie fly to Minneapolis. We play one show last summer uh, at a theater called The Hook and Ladder. And it was amazing. It was a great show. Uh, there were people weeping in the audience. You know, it was so much, so much fun. Uh, everybody just losing their minds. Uh, postponed the rest of our plans for uh, last year. And so I can recover. And now the uh, the vinyl record that we've been waiting on for over a year is finally like uh, getting to distributors and we'll be getting out to people that, that have pre-ordered it uh, within the next week. And we have this big tour booked in, um, in Minnesota. So are in the United States, we started in, in uh, the turf club in Minneapolis and we have 18 shows through the end of the month uh, with kind of the crowning point of that playing two shows at, the punk rock bowling festival in Las Vegas on uh, at the end of the tour. And we're on the, on the main stage on the last day of the festival. So it's really kind of feels like we're back, you know, we're fully back and, and I'm back and I'm can't wait to get out and start playing. I wanted to ask you, how's it, how's your health? Are you in, you know, complete recovery and you're in, you're in a good spot. I'm in a, I'm in a great spot. So they, 
they removed my prostate and, uh, you know, but the doctors say is that they got all of the cancer out. It was all contained. I had clean margins. Uh, subsequent tests have all come back clean. So, I mean, I feel great. I'm, I'm ready to go. And your sister's good as well. And my sister's doing great too. Her, her hair's grown back and uh, she's doing really well. Yep. That's a lot of, of death in a very short space of time with the global threat of COVID being, you know, the kind of introduction of that theme to begin with for everybody. And then on a personal level within your family, two such severe cases that must, does that get you kind of rethinking a little bit about everything and, and the importance and the fragility and the shortness of life and just getting out there and chasing it and, and, you know, getting it done? It, yeah, it, it certainly plays into this, you know. Um, life is short. Uh, you know, don't don't give up on your dreams. Don't stop chasing that, and get out and take advantage of of uh, what you what you can do while you're still have the ability to do it. You know, um, I, I I didn't want to be somebody that that you know is just going to toil away in a in a factory and feel I can't do it anymore and then you know the rest of my years are, are wasted because I you know beat myself to a pulp for somebody else I'd rather go out and beat myself to a pulp for myself <laughs> <laughs> and a few you know a few adoring fans along the way entertain no, and sure. spread a few smiles and I think punk rock bowling will be a great way to wound up the tour I've just had uh, Sean Stern on the show a couple of weeks back had a great chat with him Always wanted to get out to that festival, and I, I hope to someday. Uh, and and will there be plans for you guys to come and, and visit Jamie's neck of the woods and play some shows over here as well? Uh, we're hoping to uh, play Europe and and uh, England, Ireland, and Scotland this fall. Amazing. That's the plan, and then uh, we'll do more U.S. touring next year. But uh, we're also considering going back to that same studio in berlin to record the second record which uh now we're all all together here in minnesota rehearsing for the shows uh we're probably actually going to start writing some stuff too while we're on the road i love it so there is very much a fire a light underneath this band at the moment and and yeah inspiration is red hot yes it is love it dude and and how are you feeling about getting back in the van? <laughs> uh, you know, I I never really mind minded the uh, the, the hours in the van. Um, we've got some pretty long drives on this tour, though. So uh, you know, ask me at the end of the tour how how I feel about it. Right now, I'm excited. Yeah, I think that you know, touring is really where bands. It doesn't matter how old or experienced you are. Touring is where the thing really comes to life, right? You can get together and you can make the magic happen in the studio, write some great songs, make a great record. But in terms of this band, Ultra Bomb, it's the infancy stage of it, isn't it? And you're going to get out on the road, and this is where these songs are really going to come to life, and your relationships are really going to evolve, and it's going to be a great time. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and playing every night. Um, like so 18 shows in 21 days well uh, things will be nice and tight by the time we we get to vegas so uh and just feeding off the energy of the crowd that you know um after this tour jamie goes back over um to, to england to head out on the road again uh with some dates with anti Nora league and then there's a, a mahones tour right after that and somebody asked him it's like well what do you do to relax and he just laughed and said play music so. <laughs> yeah man i think when you love it you know obviously it's hard work but it doesn't feel like that because it's you know it's where you're exactly. happiest and at your best yep i totally agree with that it's you know find find something that you love and do that and then it doesn't feel like you have to work at all so and it keeps you young i do believe this i know that you know that the road years can sometimes be unkind and there can be casualties that come from touring and the pressures of being in a traveling band but i do think if you take care of yourself to a point and uh you know you're in it for the right reasons and you're getting the right things out of it that if you keep being creative and playing music 
you know i mean look at keith richards and mick jagger <laughs> right you know, there's not many other 80 year olds that are dancing around the place like that but obviously music for those guys has kept them so young and engaged with life and i see that time and time again with with the musicians that i speak to is you know they might be 75 years old but they feel like they're 40 in the prime of their oh, for sure i i totally agree with that you know i i i don't um i don't feel old and i've never acted my age so i i think i'm in a good spot <laughs> well listen greg it's been lovely chatting to you man i really enjoy this and i really appreciate your time and um congratulations on on everything and and yeah really look forward to to hopefully meeting you in person when you guys get over here i'll have to come down and and check out one of the shows and yeah good luck with everything and um take care man and, and have a great yes. day thank you cheers <laughs>